This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Have to start here, and um, it's not local, but I think we all feel this when we see the story. A driver rammed a bus into a busy nursery in Quebec yesterday, and two kids are dead. And he's been charged with first-degree murder. So right away, right away, um, the Prime Minister also spoke right away and didn't talk about it as being an accident. So I think word travels fast when you end up with a tragedy like this. Um, We've had so many moments like this, and those of us here in the city of Toronto have had these moments with the van attack and as much awfulness and horror as there was. I'll never forget how I felt that day, waking up the next day, talking about it on the radio, um, that period of time where it, it, it probably wasn't going to feel normal again for several days. We've had too many of those moments. The mosque uh, murders in Quebec City as well. We just had a significant anniversary of that a couple Sunday nights ago. This is one that is, um, it's no harder or easier to understand or to explain. And it got me thinking yesterday how you even can stay living in the community. You ever drive around in, in your town or your subdivision or where you are and Things remind you of stuff. You're like, there's the street corner where that happened. That's where, uh, you know, I, I met somebody on a on a great date. That's where we went after, you know, the Blue Jays won a playoff game. It doesn't really matter. Oftentimes, those are happy memories, but difficult memories and tragic memories. I don't know how people move on from them and stay in the same community. There's not going to be some mass exodus out of Laval, Quebec. There isn't. But in this neighborhood, where this daycare is, where this bus drove into, how do you keep going? How do you take put one, one step in front of the other? Your kids may be fine. You may not even have kids or you have adult grown-up kids. But I don't know how you don't think about that moment. And maybe you heard the crash. Maybe you were on the scene. Like this brought an entire subdivision together from watching the video. And people running. That's how loud it was. You know when something isn't just a truck backfiring or somebody shoots an air rifle into the sky or there's kids in the park playing with a BB gun. That's not what this was. And there's going to be a lot of questions, a lot of questions about how the community takes a step forward. I wish I could say nobody was dead, but I'm almost, almost relieved that there are more than two. I don't know how there are only two. But it's horrifying. Two four-year-olds. Yeah, I mean, you think about getting on a bus, too. Getting on a school bus. That's trust. And every parent who's done this, I, you know, I, I've done it to some extent. You, you kind of give the eye, especially when they're that age, four or five, and they're getting picked up. And you give that driver the eye a little bit saying, I know you've got this. I want you to know that I've got the confidence in you. And you've got to install confidence, instill confidence in me as a parent that you've got my kids' safety absolutely covered, that it's in all of our best interest for this to go well. Um, it's just so horrifying. Like, I think about people move, obviously, and and leave communities when something terrible happens in, in the community. So parents get divorced, and you can't live in the house anymore. Or if someone dies tragically, can you still live in that same house? There's ghosts everywhere. Whether you believe in the supernatural or not, that's... That's how people are going to view this. Um, The suspect is believed to have driven the bus into the nursery during the morning drop-off. 
And again, um, he's alive. There's going to be a lengthy trial. There's going to be a lengthy process. He'll get convicted. There will be outrage because he doesn't get a life sentence and he'll get a parole hearing um, probably within 15 to 20 years. He's 51 years of age. We just do this lather, rinse, repeat with our justice system over and over again. Not saying a tougher justice system would have changed anything about the actions. The actions are that of an insane human being, a deranged human being. So I'm not sure anything insane or deranged um, deserves a platform at this point in time. But it's possible he'll get it over the course of a of a trial. The police, by the way, say they don't expect any more fatalities. Um, but there are a dozen people injured and harrowing. Sometimes I I think, can I get through watching this? I knew what I'd be watching. One of the dads, his daughter's on the bus, and he describes seeing the bus accelerate, go up a ramp, and drive right into the daycare. So um, that's all we want for our kids. Make sure they're in good hands when they're not in my hands. Daycare, uh, you know, playgroup, junior kindergarten, sports, wherever. And so our thoughts are certainly with families in Laval. These are incredibly, incredibly uh, difficult moments. No question about it. Shiva Siddiqui joins me right now. Right, you put your kid on a bus and it's all you think about is, you know, pay attention Make sure your eyes are on the road. Uh, make sure my kid doesn't act up and you don't expect anything ever like this. I don't know a similar story, Sheba, in in Canada's news history that's been quite like this. No, I don't understand it either. And you go to that daycare, these parents all over our country, you go to the daycare, you drop your kids off, you expect to see them after you're finished work, you go to pick them up. And these two children that have been killed, murdered, I think, by this man, Pierre Ni saint Amand. I just don't understand. Here's what I don't get, though. So he faces nine charges, two counts of first-degree murder, attempted murder, and assault. But what he did when it happened confuses me. He, as soon as he crashed the bus, seemingly very intentionally by eyewitnesses, into this daycare, um, he proceeded to get off the bus. He took off his pants and his underwear. Uh, and it was it was. F- completely chaotic. He was trying to run away. Mm. Some of the dads from the daycare and some other neighbors who had heard the noise had come out, just started chasing him. He was hysterical. He was screaming. He was trying not to give up. He was fighting back. And they they say that they had to hit him to calm him down, to, I guess to hold him down yeah. until the police got there. Uh, so, you know, you read this and you think, okay, mental health issues, someone who takes off their pants and their underwear after doing something like this. But that doesn't hold for me. You intentionally left your city bus route that you've been doing for a decade. He's been a city bus driver in Laval for 10 years. And you very did a sharp turn into this parking lot and gunned it towards the daycare. There have to be repercussions for this. There has to be some type of punishment for this. Well, it's some kind of psychosis, right, that affects the mind in which... So that'll be the defense potentially is somebody will say he couldn't distinguish between real and not real right and and wrong. That's that's the defense that's probably coming if they're going to play it like he had had a psychotic episode. It probably does define a psychotic episode to your right. There won't to your point, there won't be a lot of public sentiment for let's just put him in an institution for three years and get him better and then walk the streets again. There won't be any any tolerance for that, will there? I know. I, I really hope not. I don't know. We've never had something like this happen before. So whatever. And just and for me, I'm t- for mental health concerns, I'm focused on the families. 
the affected families, the, the parents who lost their two children yesterday, uh, the other families, the kids were all hysterical in mm. that daycare. That's what I'm focused on. That's what I'm worried about. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Uh, yesterday at City Council, a lot of contentious issues, a lot of important issues as well. One of which is the city's shelter system, which I think we would look at and say it's not adequate. I think there's more than enough um, evidence to document that um, the Board of Health is not having its recommendations met. Someone said to me yesterday, what's the point of having a Board of Health if the recommendations can't be endorsed by the majority of council? Um, And uh, there were certainly two sides to the argument yesterday about expanding these warming centers, making them 24-7. Money's been found for this. Money's been found for that. But um, city council determined yesterday with a majority of votes that they couldn't find the dollars to make a warming center 24 um, seven that created some sparks. Here's a uh, counselor, Shelley Carroll, responding to Gord Perks, suggesting there's uh, a lack of or, uh, rather a, um, a degree of indifference to the human condition based on the voting. I have a lot of problems with my colleague's speech saying that Councillor Thompson's motion says we're doing nothing. The reason we didn't move Mr. Tanner do something at economic development is because we heard that he was doing everything possible right now. It's a very, very tough issue. It really is. Um, Amber Morley's uh, city councilor for Ward 3 Etobicoke Lakeshore, and she is on Toronto today. Thanks very much for coming back on. Um, I, I really appreciate it. Yesterday must have been it's an emotional day. It's a tough day to go to bed knowing you did everything you could do, and uh, and it fell on some deaf ears at City Council. Yeah, absolutely, Greg. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. And yeah, it was absolutely a really tough day, certainly an emotional one for some of us. I think for all of us, frankly, on Council, this is a hard issue. And for some of my colleagues, they've been around the Council you know, floor for many, many years, working towards tackling um, this issue of homelessness in our city and you know, certainly uh, emotions were high and, and um, folks were um, frustrated, I think. But for those of us on um, the side of council who were looking to support the Board of Health recommendation um, and to really call this crisis, this challenge of homelessness in our city and um, what we believe it to be, which is a crisis. Um, and, and we were really hoping that that might um, prompt some consensus, but obviously that wasn't the case. And so, um, yeah, very frustrating, very disappointing. And, you know, we all come to council to do good work and to make change for the better for our city. And, you know, it's, it's frustrating when um, we're not able to, to achieve that um, for different reasons. Some of the councillors that voted against the idea of the 24-7 warming centres, Amber, did document they wish um, there was more of a sense of urgency from the other levels of government. I, I mean, do you share that? Do you look and say the province, the federal government kind of are turning a blind eye uh, to this and just leaving this as a this is hardly simply a municipal government problem when people are sleeping on the streets? Absolutely. And there's no question that there is more that we need from both levels of government, provincially and federally. Uh, We hear time and again, you know, since amalgamation, the amount of downloads in terms of responsibilities to our city um, have been extreme and enormous Mm -hmm. and certainly have outpaced our ability to keep up with the resources that we um, can can manage, you know, in-house in terms of our own revenue generating tools and things of that nature. And so, that is very clear. 
Um, but I did share in council yesterday that I don't think that that is a, a good enough reason um, for us at council on the front lines, you know, being the, the um, service and government closest to people. Um, we are in the trenches already. And so um, my, my contention back to my colleagues was to say we can do better than what we're doing right now, uh, regardless if the province and if the federal government are at the table. Um, and one of the pieces that came up yesterday and colleagues uh, and I had asked questions about this was, you know, um, in response to the violence uh, um, in the TTC, for example, um, and on public transit, uh, we were able to very quickly make a decision and, and, and encourage um, our Toronto Police Services to deploy, um, you know, uh, officers onto um, onto the system, which, you know, felt to some people appropriate and necessary. Um, and when we heard from staff on this issue yesterday, um, the estimated cost is about $1.7 million a month is what we were told. And uh, when we're looking at the request um, around the 24-hour warming centres, the feedback, the number we got back from staff is 400000 a month, right? And so it's kind of this idea where, some of us feel we can be making better choices with the resources within at the local municipal level of government in order to better address this issue right now. People are suffering right now. Um, people are dying on our streets, and um, and it's disappointing that we, we couldn't come together to do more. Well, it strikes me, Amber, that getting a report done in April, um, some people aren't going to make it through the winter. And by April, um, obviously, the the, the the weather's better. And if they've made it, that's great. But um, the, the urgency is now. The urgency is for moments like last weekend when if you stay outside, it, it is literally, not figuratively, it's literally life and death Friday. You're outside, you're, you're not going to make it. You're inside, you're safe. You're absolutely right, Greg, and and that's really the point many of us were trying to get across. Um, it's a point that you know we've heard from medical professionals, we've heard from advocacy groups, we've heard from folks on the front lines supporting our most vulnerable Torontonians. Um, and for me, it time and again, you know, oftentimes depending on who it is we're discussing and the perceived value, right? I hate to say it, but you know that they have to our society or not, and. Um, it seems to warrant different levels of urgency. And I don't think that that's acceptable. Um, I, in my opinion, we need to do better for each other. Um, and taking care of those most vulnerable in our society says a lot about who we are and what our priorities are. I, I think the in, from an infrastructure perspective as well, Amber, I look and I go, we're not asking for, for structures to be built. We're not asking for things to be, you know, shovels to be put in the ground and foundation up. Um, these centers exist. There are warm uh, buildings with heat that these people can go to and stay inside. Some of this, obviously, the cost is staffing. Some of the, if it would be some infrastructure for food and drink, but it, 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 we're not asking for things to be created out of the ground to, uh, to, to let people, you know, basically save their existence by getting out of extreme cold. Th these buildings exist. Absolutely. And no question that there is important infrastructure necessary to get the, to the right kinds of support services, right? It's, um, it's important. And, and what we're saying is that there are so many creative ways we can look to our community stakeholders like local churches, right? There are groups within community who are already doing this work. I've spoken with um, local folks in Etobicoke Lakeshore who have been taking care of a, a young man, unfortunately, who's living in a cemetery in our community. I don't have, when they're calling the warming centers, when they're calling uh, for shelter, um, which again, right, there are challenges due to staffing. We need to support our frontline workers who are supporting this community. And we need to um, provide more resources to shelter services. 
um, and, and housing support so that they can be working collaboratively, building partnerships, identifying those opportunities, um, and frankly, having the support they need to provide the support to this community. And um, I think it was a short-sighted of council, frankly, to not uh, move more boldly in the direction that we need to get more results more urgently. Amber Morley is our guest on Toronto Today. Uh, she's, of course, the Toronto City Councillor for Ward 3 Etobicoke Lakeshore on 640 Toronto. Um, when you ran in the fall and then when you won in the fall, did you truly understand the the depth of, of the homeless problem? I, I actually think if, if you'd asked me in October, I would have not expected um, it to be this bad a problem. I expected it to be a worse problem next year. And I think every, every solution and every conversation needs to be on the table about how to fix some of this. Did you did you have a full understanding of it, even in October, how bad this was? I honestly, um, for sure, had a good grasp on the fact that our city is one of the most unequal cities in the world. Um, and that has consequences, right? We've not been able to tackle poverty reduction in our city in an adequate way, in my opinion, um, over the last number of decades, right? Despite um, us naming it as a priority um, and, and having, you know, recommendations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it hasn't necessarily been a priority for council, in my opinion, for the last number of years. And one of the reasons I ran to get onto council to try to, you know, influence um, us to do better on, on these kinds of files. And so, you know, when you combine our lack of um, focus on that area um, and also looking at the impacts of the pandemic, which have been tremendous on everybody, um, especially those, um, you know, most vulnerable in our society, we talked a lot about the yeah. pandemic recovery and a fair recovery and what does that look like? Um, and now that we're at yeah. the tail end of this pandemic, those conversations seem to have totally, um, you know, evaporated and we all, everyone just wants to get back to normal, but there is no more normal for folks. And um, for people who've really struggled and been challenged through this pandemic, as we all have, we're leaving them out in the cold at this point. I hear you. I, I hear you. Um, let's have more conversations about it. Thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure. Thank you, Greg. Have a great morning. Amber Morley uh, from uh, Ward 3 joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Time to do in or out. Are you in or out? Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. So are we in or out? You're out. You are over and out. No, 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 no. Insulted him a little bit. I'm okay with it, but now you're making me feel weird. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go against the grain here. We were talking about this off the air a few days ago. Uh, Sunday, Sheba Gord, everybody will sit there around 4 o'clock, get ready for the pregame, think about snacks, think about what dinner is for, uh, for Super Bowl, and everybody's got their favorites. But our in or out today has to do with buffalo wings slash chicken wings. I think this is the most overrated food imaginable for a snack. <laughs> and how do I, why do I think this? They didn't even exist. The idea of, of do, eating something that had so much bone and just nothing on it wasn't even a thing 30 years ago. So I'm, I don't like them. I think they're messy. I don't, I think you're always, you're, you're never sure you've got all the, all the food off the wing in particular. Um, I'd rather I'd rather eat boneless wings. I'd rather eat boneless. Oh, you want a wings. chicken nugget? That's yeah. what you want. You want a chicken nugget? Yeah, kind of. And and I I hear that all the time. And it's like, well, a boneless wing's basically a nugget. And I'm like, yes. Where's the, the like? Am I supposed to be insulted that you point this out? I, that's my preference. I get more food for the buck. 
Okay, so you're out on wings, Gord. What I'm, are you? I'm in. I'm in on the chicken wings. Super Bowl didn't exist, you know, a while ago, 50 years ago. <laughs> that's, so that's they, the they argument. Go hand in hand. You got to get messy in it all over your face and in your hands. No. It's all part of it. Yeah. You're not okay. supposed to look at the other guy anyway eating. Yeah. What are you doing staring everyone down, uh, Greg? Come on. You're that uh, creepy uh, but, guy. But at the it bar. becomes so obvious when, when, and it's obviously 98.7% men uh, <laughs> that dig in and they're like, I don't think I've gotten all the food off this wing bone yet. And they just keep digging and digging. And, and, and they don't use utensils. Like, like at, at a certain point, no, they you don't use extract. your teeth. Yeah. All you need are your teeth. So I am all in on wings and bone in wings. I think that there's no uh, sports party. And yes, I know Super Bowl is more important to many men out there than their own wedding days. But I just don't think you can have like a watch party without some bone in chicken wings and like the honey garlic and the barbecue and the mild and all of them, all the flavors do it. And no, not a chicken wing, Greg, an actual bone in wing. But then there's the I'm there's sorry, a not, mess not a chicken afterwards. <laughs> there, there's a mess afterwards. Well, you have the wet naps. You get the wet naps, yeah, right? The, when you're in a the, restaurant. And then the, the environmental. Did we? We just talked about how messy Toronto Harbor is. People would flush <laughs> those wet naps down the toilet, and then with all <laughs> with diapers, um, not adult diapers. Uh, but uh, not it, to me. It's too much. Four one six eight seven zero sixty four hundred. They're almost all skin and fat. There's just not a lot of like when you use the phrase meat on the bone. I don't think buffalo wings. I don't think chicken wings. And I, I, and they're always deep fried. I think there's a better, like, you know me, I'm a paragon of, of health with, with the food that I eat. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's, I, I, I don't, I think there's way more sensible ways to eat fried chicken. Way more sensible ways to eat fried chicken. I hate throwing the bones out. Well, if you're going to dis- declare that the Super Bowl is the day that you're going to start eating healthy, that the timing is off True. a little bit on that. My buddy has a technique with with the with the wing part. You just push the meat up like an, you're opening an umbrella, and it's all there. His is like completely I've clean. I've seen that. I've seen people do that. That's a technique. You're, That's a you're skill. not supposed to pop it into the air though, like that. That's not. That's not something you're supposed to Why? do in it's, public. He, he, it looks like a little umbrella, like the ones you put in your drink. I'm blowing know. your mind. I'm telling you right now, you're you're coming back to the to the good side. Okay, we're getting right. some text it, in, in this. Oh, wings in wings are the best. Bone in chicken wings, suicide and blue cheese mixed together. Oh, and all in all in with bing all in wings, um, and the bones are tasty. The bones are tasty. Hmm. Some of this does factor in that 83% of uh, wing flavors do make me sweat profusely. <laughs> I'm not good with spicy food. Oh, you are? Like, eat, eat, I didn't know that. I'm not, you. even a medium. I don't know what it is. I, I, I want to do more research and find out whether that's just how people eat. As, do, do they sort of build up um, immunity, if you will, to spicy food if they have a lot of it as a kid? Because we never had Mexican. We never had a lot of spice in the Mexican Brady is spicy food for you? Absolutely it is. Oh, a taco. Man. Greg. Okay. Yeah, maybe you are Medi- good at medium, chicken nuggets. Medium wings make me make me sweat profusely. <laughs> it's really embarrassing. So when I see people eat, I it, it, like just to, just the feel. I used to have to open these um, cans of jalapenos. I used to have to open huge cans of jalapenos when I was a busboy, uh, when I was seventeen years old, and uh, and and I just would like my entire face would become Whoa. just drenched and my uh, my forehead would sweat and that's the last thing anybody wants to think about 
is me scooping jalapeno, a sweaty 17-year-old Brady scooping jalapenos <laughs> but there into you go. You're triggered by it. That's why. It goes dish. right back to there. It's a lot there. of bad, yeah. Um, all right, so Buffalo Wings in or out. Uh, Dave Bradley, I, I'm, I'm afraid to even ask. What, in or out? Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm full on in for wings. They're messy. They're do you great. really get They're... good value for yes, the price? You like, do you do. really get full price for your kilogram of chicken? Do you, you do? remember one cent wings or even like 10 cent wings <laughs> when you could go to a restaurant or a bar and, and get like a whole mess of wings for like a nickel? A nickel? Well, maybe not a nickel. You get five for a nickel. But anyway, you five bucks and you would eat happily all day. Were we celebrating the end of World War II when we were doing that and, <laughs> and going in for uh, penny wings? At you the don't old remember speakeasy? penny wings? At the old speakeasy? Oh, yeah. they were so good. So good. I, yeah. I would sweat because I'd get the meat sweat from eating too many. <laughs> this is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Very pleased to have our next guest on. She wrote a great op-ed on uh, centralized wait lists, and she was also part of a healthcare uh, panel I watched the other night. I thought she was brilliant, so we welcome her on. Um, she is Armin uh, Yelnazian. Uh, thank you very much for uh, – I thought you were fantastic on the panel the other night. I watched that on uh, on CBC on Sunday night, I think, Monday night maybe. Yep, it was Monday night, the day before the Prime Minister and the Premiers got together. Thank you very much, Greg, and thank you for having me back on your show. Of course. We had um, we had one um, person that was in the room with you, Dr. Quadwell Kiramanting, uh, in studio yesterday, and, and he's great. He's quite inspirational also. Yeah, you know, that whole session was fantastic. In fact, may I just say your competitor in a certain way, the CBC, Uh, has done a really good job of bringing together people from different sides of the same problem, whether it's labor shortages and bringing together employers and employees or housing shortages, bringing together landlords and tenants. And this was another example of this remarkable thing that they're doing right now, which is first person singular, people just listening to one another, not talking over one another. And they've invited me to be this kind of context setting. Like what's the, what are, what's the economic issues? What are the macro issues that the sea you're swimming in when you're dealing with these problems? And it's just been a delight to watch the uh, the way people listen to one another, one another and learn from one another in real time, myself included. <laughs> well, I, I, it's funny you say that because I said to to Dr. K yesterday, I said, can we get politics and ideology out of healthcare? Because all these other countries, they seem to have found a way to do it. They seem to have found a way to uh, to not make it this massive political issue where people are blaring into megaphones and screaming at each other. So when Italy's government shifts one way or France's government or Australia's government, their healthcare just people shrug their shoulders and they and they just roll with their system. They found a way to make it work somehow. And we haven't done that yet. One of the reasons for that, Greg, is that we have actually a much larger share of what we provide one another. Uh, being uh, privately funded through our own pockets and sometimes public taxpayer money going to for-profit delivery. So it's always been a little bit more of a hair-trigger conversation here about what is covered, what isn't covered by public insurance, which is our tax dollars, and so what we're paying for out-of-pocket, as well as you know where does that money go, which we by and large can't trace how much of our money goes into for-profit care. And, you know, the big question there is why are we spending, as Tommy Douglas used to say, why are we spending a dollar when 99 cents will do? Why are we paying essentially for the business model that permits dividends to be distributed to shareholders on tax dollars for providing us with care? So there's a lot of 
prickly conversations that will not get resolved. Because, for example, in Europe, the countries that you've mentioned, healthcare is a huge part of the economy, but it's over 80% funded through public expenditures. Here we don't cover pharmaceuticals in every jurisdiction, mm-hmm. uh, for especially for the working age. Here we don't cover dental care. Here we don't cover vision care. There's so much we don't cover uh, that, you know, there, <laughs> there's lots of private equity firms right now that have switched over from technology and are looking for the next cash count, and they've got healthcare in, their, in the crosshairs. So it's going to be a real big fight. Yeah, and, and for very good reason. Um, you write in the Star um, about centralized waitlists. I mean, what are they? Why are they so critical to our future? Well, you know, in almost anything else, you pick a number, you go to a deli, you get a number, you, you go to a, a checkout counter at the airport or a check-in counter at the airport, and you wait in line for the next person that's available to serve you. That's the same on a phone call. In healthcare, we basically treat it as a cottage industry. One person with their doctor or their number one care provider, which is usually a doctor, um, doing all of the connecting points. It's like a radial system instead of a throughput system. It's a system design flaw, and we have had the answers to it for over 20 years. In fact, there is about a 10-page section in the Romano Report from 2002 and, you know, that was published in 2002. We were talking about it for years ahead of time on how we could be using queuing theory, which is a very common feature in business models, to smooth throughput. But what it requires is a, a term I'm sorry to use on radio, interoperability. That means there are two systems that are talking to one another all the time, the demand for the care and the supply of the care. So what do people need? And how is that being triaged by urgency? And then what is the availability of surgeries? And you do that when you centralize it across an entire province or even an entire country. You can identify where places are um, free, faster uh, for you to be able to plug into if you are willing to go there. Or you can actually even identify systemic failures where there's more demand than supply systemically in a place. So you need to build more capacity. And it's that interface of what do people need and where is it available that maximizes the use of what we've already got. So you're not building capacity where you don't need it and you are not underutilizing the capacity you already have. But I just want to really underscore that waitlists are not a magic bullet. You can't use the information that waitlists give you if you don't staff properly. And we've been chronically understaffing our hospitals. It's also, you know, it it matches supply with demand. It matches with somebody with the desire for a product. And if if we're to say, you know, a a surgery or an exam is a product, it it matches um, it it matches the people that need to be matched with the the people that can supply it. And private industries figure that out. I mean, we used to not used to have to go to a travel agent to book a flight. And then somebody had the bright idea. You know what? Why don't we let people book their own airline tickets? Like we haven't done any of that in the healthcare industry. No, exactly. And we've heard so much blowback from the people who are the gatekeepers, who are the doctors who want to retain control over every single move. You know, this, so this cottage industry is 7% of the economy and about 13% of all jobs. It cannot be distributed by one gatekeeper at a time. We need a system approach. Now, in Quebec, they have such a system. In Alberta, they have such systems within 
health regions, but they have difficulty managing resources across regions. We could be if we but we've got a long history of showing where it works in the wake of the Romano report. Almost everybody tried a version of centralized waitlist. And in some jurisdictions, it really made a difference in Saskatchewan. They cut down not just one surgery, like a hip surgery or a cataract surgery. They cut down the waitlist not just for one of them, but for all surgeries by 89% over the course of five years. And as I said, it wasn't just the lists. It was staffing what was needed where it was needed. And then it stopped, right? So their waitlists are right back up again. Why? Because... A new government gets elected. They have different priorities. If you don't consistently fund it and update these systems, they won't work. It's amazing. I, I've got, a, a, you know, about a minute and a half here, but you make the point that it's you could check out how long um, an elective surgery wait time is on a website, but it doesn't tell you where the wait was shortest. You know, when we did that really well, the initial vaccine campaign, you could figure out where to go and what time your appointment needed to be to get your Pfizer Madeira shot. Like for something so sudden, we were able to create that. And for things that, that have been, you, you know, we've needed for decades to update, we haven't done that. Well, not only that, Greg, great example. Not only that, it was <laughs> there again, you had a private for-profit provider telling you through shoppers and through Rexall what was available that was monitored by the province. But the most remarkable access was the open access that these kids created. I don't know if you remember that. That's right, the vaccine hunters. Yeah, yeah. Right? They they were just amazing. We don't need businesses to develop Mm. these models. We have the technology, open access technology. We just don't use it. We don't. Um, Armin, I love having you on. Thanks so much. I thought, again, I thought you were just brilliant the other night on TV. So thanks very much for the time for our listeners this morning. Uh, it's a great pleasure. Thank you. Armin Yelnesian joining us on Toronto Today.